Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today, we have Dr. Bill Campbell, who is one of the leading researchers and one of the, my go-to people when it comes to research about physique, not only from a standpoint of uh, he's somebody I've been following for years and, and just taking in his content, but he's actually somebody that I've grown close to lately as we've been communicating back and forth, um, and he directly sends me studies. So he's somebody that I actually go directly to for education, and I highly recommend most people check him out, and I think you'll like this podcast. Um, Dr. Bill Campbell is an associate professor of exercise science and director of the Performance and Physique and Enhancement Laboratory at the University of South Florida. He has a PhD in exercise science and preventative health. Um, and his lab is actually one of the only ones that solely focuses on strength, hypertrophy, fat loss, like that. That's all they do. It's called the Performance and Physique Enhancement Laboratory for a reason, and it's one of the top ones in the world. Um, he's, he's authored multiple books. He's authored over 150 uh, scientific abstracts and manuscripts focused on the topics of sports nutrition and exercise performance. So he's heavily into the research field, and he's very experienced in the research field. He's also the president of the International Society of Sports Nutrition and a certified strength and conditioning specialist. Um, I mean, his accolades just go on and on and on. He is uh, one of the smartest dudes that I personally know. He's one of the smartest people that I seek information from. Um, he's well-connected in the industry. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this podcast today as we dive into um, three or four specific studies that he has covered with female physique enhancement, protein overfeeding, the recent diet break study that he performed, diet break refeed study that he performed, um, and many other things along the way as we kind of converse back and forth. So once again, I think you guys are going to really, really enjoy this podcast. It's extremely informative, extremely educational. Um, so grab a paper, grab some pen, uh, get ready to take notes because this one we go in a deep dive. And if you like the show, as always, make sure you post a screenshot and tag us. We want to both thank you for listening. We want to share it on our story. So you can tag me at Cody.BoomBoom. You can tag Bill at Bill Campbell PhD, all one word. Um, tag us, post on your story, a screenshot, and we want to see it. We want to thank you for listening. We want to share it on our story as well. Um, once again, guys, you're going to love this episode. I appreciate you being here and listening. And without any further ado, let's talk to the one and only Dr. Bill Campbell. All right. Today I have Dr. Bill Campbell on the podcast. I'm excited to have you on, man. Um, I've been shit, reading your stuff for a long time. Um, so it's really, really cool to have you. I mean, I remember uh, videos you did in the past. I've, um, I've been friends with Lauren Conlon for a long time. So I've, and that's, I believe actually who introduced us at first. Um, yeah. But just over the years, just reading a ton of your content, um, reading a lot of people's content who cite your research constantly. So it's really cool to actually have you on the show and um, to, uh, I hate the term, pick your brain, but essentially pick your brain. <laughs> yeah. I'm, 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 thank you for the invitation. I'm, I'm excited to talk about something that's my favorite thing, which is my lab and my research. Yeah. So the first question I have for you is actually how, how that all came about. Like, I really want to know the background first of why, how'd you get into training and nutrition? Like why step into it? And then why step into it to this degree? Cause some people love training, but I mean, you really, have to love training and nutrition to start a physique lab like you have. 
Yeah. So it, it, my career didn't start off on this path. Um, I went to college at, for, as an undergrad and I, and I was a marketing major. And the reason that I chose marketing was because I thought it was the easiest degree that I could do and pass. I, I really want, I was actually wanted to go to college to play basketball and this was a division three school. So that was the, my motivation to go to college. It wasn't really academic. So I got my degree in marketing and I loved bodybuilding at that time. I had done a show about within about a year after grad, year or two after graduating. So bodybuilding was kind of my passion when I was younger and I was in a, a career in marketing and I'm like, I, I don't know if I want to do this forever. And I remember reading something that said, if you, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in, in, you know, you'll never work a day of your life. And I was like, Hmm, well, I don't really love what I'm doing in marketing, but I really love bodybuilding and sports nutrition and trying to lose fat and different types of diets. So I decided then I was going to make a career change and I didn't have any science background whatsoever. So I had to literally start at the bottom, took, you know, some general chemistry, biochemistry, organic chemistry. So I spent a few years getting all of these prerequisites so that I could enter a master's program. And even then, when I entered my master's program and got my, and my master's was in exercise physiology, and then I started a doctoral program. I, was, I knew I either wanted to work for a sports nutrition company or possibly go into academia. And then the longer I was in, in that space, I was just more gravitated towards academia. And the primary reason was I wasn't, um, I had gotten married during that time. And I love fitness entrepreneurs. Like what you do, I love. I, I like, and what Lauren Conlon does, like that to me is so motivating. But it is not me. I do not like the risk and the uncertainty of how much will my paycheck be next week, next month. What if a pandemic happens to hit the earth and <laughs> I might lose some clients? So <laughs> I, I think I chose the most secure job that exists on the planet in terms of if I were to get tenure, which I did, in terms of a tenured professor job. So... I get a lot of joy out of my students like Lauren Conlon and others like her that are, you know, doing their own bank, uh, their own business. They're, they're hiring other people. So I, I live vicariously through you and people like her, but I know my role, my role is in a very, I, I want to know what my paycheck's going to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I get that. And, and this is, it's funny that you bring this up during this time. Cause I'm sure a lot of people are, Kind of rolling their eyes right now thinking, yep, I get it. Um, so, so one question I do have following that up is, what do you recommend coaches who aren't going in getting their master's or even their bachelor's? Like, I mean, for me personally, I don't have my bachelor's degree, but I got really into the science and I just kept digging and digging and digging and hiring coaches and learning from other people and, and trying to build um, content and education and then hiring people to join my team and stuff like that. Um, but it's kind of unorthodox. There's not a lot of people that go as deep into it as I do, unless they are literally in the college doing that themselves. Um, so what, what do you have for recommendations or people to go do to like kind of get that fundamental uh, I guess, science-based or evidence-based approach and start going down that path without necessarily going to school? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, 
I think the, the first thing to appreciate is when you, if somebody wants to do what you do, and you said you do not have an, a, a bachelor's degree. No, I do not. Okay, so I think a lot of people think, well, I'm going to go to college and get a degree in exercise science or in something like that. And they think mistakenly that every class and everything they're going to learn is about muscle building and fat loss. And that it is so far from the truth. You're learning about the reproductive system. You're learning about philosophy. There's all, you know, half of your time is on liberal arts things, which have nothing to do with your passion. Now, that's not to say that that stuff's worthless. I'm not saying that. But I wouldn't want anybody to think that a four-year college degree is four years of digging into the intricacies of flexible dieting and the AKT mTOR pathway and et cetera, et cetera. So knowing that, the first thing that I, the advice I would give somebody if, if they didn't want to go to college or if they don't have a college background, I would send them to you. And I would say, here's somebody that's doing this on the same path that you're on. So you can teach them 10 times more than I can about how you've succeeded in that regard. Now, obviously, just based on your last hire, you highly value evidence-based outcomes, the science of exercise, the science of nutrition, because you just hired a CSO, Dr. Roberts, which I think was a great hire. So without the college degree, I think it, it would be just YouTube, trying to learn how to read a scientific article, just teaching yourself. And there's a lot of value in that because you're saving a lot of time. You're saving the expense of a college degree. So I wouldn't say that that is a a bad choice. It does, it's harder to get credibility without the degree. A degree yeah. gives you instant credibility. So there's a huge benefit to that, but that comes with the expense of time and money. So I'm, I'm not somebody that says you have to get a college degree. Um, now I just said that most programs don't necessarily focus on physique enhancement. Now my program, <laughs> it actually does more so than anybody else, we have a literal focus on that stuff with my research and some of the classes that I just, we just created a class about two years ago called the science of physique enhancement. So I'm trying to move in a direction where, where the people that choose to get a, a, a college degree can really dive into the area that you have for your profession and what happens to be my passion. Did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think the first point is actually a really good point. So I went to a two-year school, and the program was actually called uh, Fitness and Health, I think. And it was I – I don't even think I took a math class. Like it was like human biology, human anatomy, functional movement, um, program design, business of personal training, like very specific to that. And I, I did that on purpose because I wanted just a straight shot. But like to your point – if you go back and watch, starting from the very first video, just watch Lane Norton and Eric Helms' videos on YouTube for the next few months, you're going to learn so much over, over the course of time. Get the Muscle and Strength Pyramids, read that, Mass Research Review, which I know you're aware of. There's so much good information out there, and that's kind of what I did. I was just like, well, who are these? And I mean, you were in there too, helping me from afar without you knowing, but just taking in the content from these people, I think you can learn a lot more than people realize. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And that's a great point. Ebooks. You're 
I mean, if you look at those two guys that you just mentioned, they have PhDs and the benefit that they bring is they also run a business with coaches. Mm -hmm. So what I can't imagine better people to learn from than, than those, than those people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so diving into the, the first of the four studies that we're going to cover today that you have uh, brought to the table, the first one being the, the high protein study with women athletes. Can you explain, um, give the study title and then kind of like the purpose and the methods behind it and we can then kind of dive into the results and takeaways? Yeah, yeah. So the title was something like high versus low protein and aspiring female physique athletes. So the goal with that study was to recruit resistance trained females that had either competed previously or that had that were planning to compete in a bikini or physique or figure show within the next year and about two-thirds of them actually fit that definition so they were not they were not all experienced competitors they were novice so they were novice competitors or to be competitors and Kind of my lab's approach is we focus on women a lot more than men. Now, I have plenty of years of investigating men with some of our powerlifting research from years ago, but not many people study females. And this was one of the earlier studies that we did that solely focused on females trying to optimize their physiques. Why is that? Not to interrupt, like, because I've heard that many times. Uh, from other research reviewers and researchers that like it's hard to find good studies on women in general. Yeah. Well, I think part of the reason is if any studies funded by a sports nutrition company, the majority of those purchasers are male. So that's where they would, that's where they typically want the, the, the population to come from. Uh, the other thing is females, at least on an absolute basis, don't gain as much muscle as males. Now, relatively speaking, they gain just as much muscle. So I think that's why it's just a, it's somewhat stereotypical. Oh, it's the men that lift weights or they're the ones that are going to push themselves. And then the second one is a little bit more industry directed. Okay. So the idea with that study was, there wasn't a lot of research. We always, we've known or we've thought we've known, well, higher protein's better than lower protein. But if you actually go look at the actual scientific studies that have investigated that question, you're not gonna find many, I, at most a handful. There's a lot of other studies that seem to suggest higher protein is better, but those were based on whole body nitrogen excretion studies, nothing muscle specific. So that was the desire for that particular study. What do we know about high versus low protein in females? And what we did was we set two polar opposite protein intakes. We said to the one group, and this was randomized, you may not eat more than 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass. So we set like this, this floor here. The other group we said, you have to eat at least 2.4 or double that. So that was up here. So we have this big difference in protein intakes. What actually happened was the lower protein group only ingested 0.9 grams per kg and the high protein group actually ingested 2.5 grams per kg. So we got exactly what we wanted. And they, they resistance trained in my lab, the physique lab for eight weeks. We watched or supervised every single rep, every single set for eight weeks. Their program was four days per week, two days upper body, two days of lower body. 
And we also tracked their every single gram of protein, carbs, and fat that entered into their body. So they had to be educated on, or they already knew how to track their macros. And, and we did that throughout the entire eight weeks. And I think that was the first study that we did where we had them track macros, actually the second, the second study. So it was very well controlled from the standpoint of supervise their training and having them track everything every day during the eight week study. At the end of the study, what we found was the high protein group gained about four and a half pounds of muscle. The low protein group, I thought would lose muscle, but they actually maintain muscle. They may have gained like a little less than a pound or about a pound. And then I think the, none of that was surprising. The thing that did surprise me was that the high protein group, even though they increased their calories by about 250, they actually lost a significant amount of body fat over the course of those eight weeks, which doesn't make sense. I've always been taught, if you increase your calories, you're gonna, you, you're gonna gain fat. Well, that's not what happened. They lost fat. And what I, what, another thing we thought would happen is increase your protein. I thought naturally they would lower their carbs and fat. That didn't happen. They kept carbs and fat the same. So at the end of the day, they actually did increase their total calories. Now, it's possible that just because they increased their calories, and I get asked this a lot, well, maybe that was the reason they gained four and a half pounds of muscle. And I'm saying technically that's right because we don't know. But I don't think if we gave them an extra 250 calories of fat or carbs that they're gaining four and a half pounds of muscle and losing body fat. I don't, I don't believe that for a second, but I, I can't prove that because we didn't test that. So that, that yeah, that, there was the major outcomes of that study. Yeah, I think, I think anybody who wants to pick apart a study is going to try to throw that out just to throw it out. But anybody who is really into this stuff would probably agree with you that there's just, it's very unlikely that that would have happened if it was increased otherwise. Yes. Yeah. That's again, that, that's my belief. Um, and I always, and, and, and I, I invite that criticism because it's a good criticism, but I would also say, well, please do a study in aspiring female physique athletes where you give them an extra 250 calories of fat and you tell me what happens. Like, yeah. so I, I'm not, if you're really that interested or think that that's a fatal flaw, then I would just encourage you to, to do that study in your own lab. Yeah. And I think, uh, so, so for context for people listening, I believe that's just over a gram per pound of body weight and protein, right? Yes. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, maybe like 1.2, 1.1, 1.2, somewhere in there. Which is cool because a lot, I feel like a lot of studies in the past that have been done, not in the physique setting, uh, when they're high protein, it's not high uh, like a normal bodybuilder consumes. It's usually still below a gram per pound. Is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Gram per pound's crazy talk to most people or the, the general nutrition. They would consider high like 1.6. Yeah. Even 1.2, you'll see that um, in years past. And when I was in grad school, which I guess now is <laughs> sadly about 15 years ago now, there was still a debate on whether protein was beneficial and whether it was harmful. That was still debate. There were still dietitians saying you cannot eat that much protein. It's bad for your kidneys and it's just going to add fat. It does nothing for muscle mass. Today, nobody really argues that. And if they do, you can, we just point them to that, to my study and say, well, here's actual data to, to support a higher protein diet. 
Yeah. So, so I think people listening will probably kind of gather like, okay, you add more protein, you're going to build more muscle because that it's the building block for muscle tissue. It makes sense. But the, the crazy part is the fat loss. And I believe, I, I don't know, and, and you can probably correct me if I'm wrong, because Jose Antonio, uh, I had him on the show almost a year ago now, so it's been a while, but he did an overfeeding protein study that was like astronomical amounts of protein. 4.4 like, grams per kg. Yeah, which is like double your body weight. Yep. Yeah, double your body weight, um, which is crazy. And uh and I believe that they saw the same thing. There was no added fat mass at all, and they were in a surplus because of it. Is that correct? Yeah. So, he, yeah, he actually did two different high-protein studies. One was 3.4 grams per kg. One was 4.4 grams per kg. And in neither study did they gain fat. And that 4.4, that, that was nearly 800 calories of additional food per day. Not a pleasant so, study to participate in. <laughs> No, no, that's a lot of protein shakes, I, I believe, and probably a lot of gas. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think is happening here? Why is that? Because I get the question all the time where people will say, um, they'll ask me, so protein can't be stored as fat? And it, it's hard for me to answer because calories can be stored as fat. So, but I believe, and you can kind of make this, uh, explain this better, but I believe that your body's probably going to use it. And if it doesn't, it's just going to waste it as nitrate or something is that correct yeah so I'll, I'll give my best shot at it i don't know why generally i have thoughts and and just one note when i when when i first read joey antonio's studies i actually didn't believe it i'm like How on, there's no <laughs> way that they that they didn't gain fat yeah and i'm pretty certain in the 3.4 gram per kg study they actually lost fat in that as well with like an additional 500 calories i'll have to look but i think they lost fat as well so I was like, ah, his studies weren't as well controlled as some other ones. So I, I don't know. And then we did my study and we found the same thing actually where they lost fat. So now I was like, well, I, I, I have to believe my own data. So I don't doubt this anymore. And what I, what I think's happening is the only explanation to me is neat. So it's causing your body to just expend more energy through non-exercise adaptive thermogenesis. So you're fidgeting more, you're losing more of this, this energy or these calories as heat through the thermogenic effect of protein. That's the only thing that makes sense. Now, that may not be it, and we, nobody in these studies that we're talking about measured NEAT, so it's, it's purely a hypothesis on my part. The other thing that I have noticed, and I'm aware of about four studies, possibly five now, where if you increase calories and it's in and it's solely in the form of protein so you're not adding any carbs and you're not adding any fat that's where we see this observation that you're not going to gain fat and you potentially may lose fat so i think the at least my early thought on this is if you're going to increase calories make it from protein and you may not lose you may not gain weight I think it's a really valuable tool for people dieting in general that deal with hunger. It's like, well, it's not going to hurt. Bump it up a little bit and it's going to keep you satiated. It's the most satiating nutrient. Yes. Yep. And that's, that's a very good point. What's the harm? What's the benefit? There doesn't seem to be a lot of harm. In fact, I would say this, I would ask somebody to, to present a study where they only increase protein and they gain fat. 
I, I don't know if that study exists. And if it does, please send it to me because I, I want to know this. That would inform me as I think through this. And actually, the next study we're going to do, at least we were planning to do it before the coronavirus came, and we still are planning to do it. Uh, we're hoping to start in the fall. We're going to take non-resistance trained females. So we've already demonstrated in trained females what can happen. Now we want to we want to ask, and you would appreciate this for, for your business in terms of your general population. If the only thing we do is tell females, this will be in females, hey, just increase your protein. Uh, you know, try to double your protein from your current level. W what happens? So we're going to have them start resistance training, and we're going to have one group just eat normally. They're not going to change anything. We're going to have a second group eat more high protein foods that they already normally eat. So we're going to ask them to just double if they normally eat eggs twice a week. Okay. We'll have, instead of two eggs, can you eat four eggs per serving? And then the other group we're going to give protein supplements to protein bars, protein shakes. And we're actually going to try to double or more their protein intake. Because if this also works in the general population, it's a heck of a lot easier to just add protein or track protein than it is to track all of your macros. It's a much easier lifestyle habit to just focus on protein. Yeah, so I think that's gonna be a cool study, especially for people like you with general pop clients. I would agree. I think it's cool too. It's, just, it's definitely a tool I've used in my coaching with um, fluctuating protein intake based on the phase of diet we're in. And, and there's times where if somebody's done with a diet and they're going into a gaining phase or a maintenance phase, we might decrease it to more maintenance levels and bring carbs up because we can do that. But just the fact that we have that range where we can shoot from with protein and not have any detriment, I think is really helpful. And like, and like you said, there's no study to prove it, but there's to my awareness, there's no study to prove that it's even unhealthy. So let's say like not even considering body composition, there's really no danger in it as well from a health perspective. No. And in fact, on that note, on, on the first day of my sports nutrition class, and I do this in my undergraduate class, I tell them, if you can present to me one study that shows that high protein diets are unhealthy in, a, in an otherwise healthy population. So we're not talking about end stage renal disease or diabetics, but if you can bring me one study, I will give you an A for the class you're done for the year because I don't think that study exists. And if it does, I want to know about it because I don't want to tell people to have to eat high protein if it's unhealthy. And so far after, you know, doing this for 13 years, nobody has been able to produce a study in healthy people, regardless of the protein intake. And Dr. Antonio, again, he did a, a year long high protein study where they did a lot of meta, uh, clinical blood work looking at liver function, kidney function, glomerular filtration rate, and they found no elevation of markers that would tend to say that somebody's harming their, their metabolic system. Yeah, and that's, that's super helpful too. I think uh, it, it's one of those ones that's been around for a long time, and I think it just keeps getting – It's creatine is kind of up there too where it's <laughs> – over and over studies prove it, it's, not, it's not harmful, it's okay take the creatine. Um, but I do want to get into the next study. And that's one that I was actually really excited about. You personally sent me when it first came out. Um, and I actually just read it in mass. I think Eric Helms reviewed yes. it yeah, like a couple days the, ago. They highlighted it. Yeah. Um, so can you fill us in on that study? This is the diet break and refeed study. Yeah. So 
this was what we're calling a diet refeed study. So to me, I define a diet break as somebody's dieting, let's say for four weeks, then they take an entire week off. That would be a diet break. A diet refeed is a break, but it's a little shorter. So we're defining that as two days of taking a break from your diet. Mm. And the reason we, we wanted to investigate this was because I, I, I'd like to think of diets is just not a place where you want to be very often. If you're going to diet, have a plan and try to diet on as many calories as you possibly can. Don't rush the process. Don't, you know, what we would call crash diets. Because there's actually, when you look at the, the, the harms of dieting, there's a lot of them that happen psychologically and physiologically. Now, I happen to focus on the physiological negative aspects of dieting. So based off of some research in obese males where they found a lot of benefits to just simply taking a break from your diet, we said, well, what if we do this in resistance trained people who are already relatively lean, so they're not obese, they're resistance training, will this help prevent the loss of muscle mass on the positive side? Will it cause them to lose more fat on the positive side? Or is it a bad idea altogether? Will they actually gain fat because they're actually going to increase their calories for two days? So what we did, we had two groups, males and females. This was a seven-week diet. The first group dieted for seven weeks straight. They didn't take any breaks. And that's how most people diet. They're just going to diet every day. The second group also dieted for seven weeks. But every weekend for two days, we said, take a break from the diet. Increase your calories back to maintenance levels and all from carbohydrates. So we really want you to increase your carbs on Saturday and Sunday. And the reason that they could do that was because during the week, they reduced their calories more than the other group to account for the fact that they were increasing on the weekend. So specifically, the group that didn't take any breaks, they had a daily 25% caloric reduction. The refeed group, Monday through Friday, were actually at 35% reduction. And then on the weekends, they went back to 100%. So that's an, there's an important consideration there. They weren't allowed to eat whatever they wanted and just go crazy. They had to stop at the amount of calories they were eating prior to the study starting. So they were still had to exhibit some self-control. Wasn't a cheat day. It, it was not a cheat day. Now, they could have had, what's everybody's favorite whipping boy, uh, Pop-Tarts. They could have had a lot of Pop-Tarts <laughs> on the weekend because that's mostly carbs. And we didn't, you know, it was a macro-based approach, so we didn't tell them they had to eat certain foods. So we thought, or I thought, at the end of the seven weeks, we're probably not going to have any difference in muscle or fat because it's the same caloric deficit over the seven weeks. To my surprise, their, they, the group taking the break was able to maintain their muscle mass significantly better than the group that didn't take any breaks. Fat loss was the same. And in addition to protecting their muscle mass, they were also able to maintain their metabolic rate significantly better than the other group. And what we know about that is that sets them up for a greater success for future dieting should they continue to diet. So the last thing you want is a suppressed metabolism, which is what normally happens when you diet and lose weight. Mm -hmm. There was something about these refeeds 
that protected their muscle mass and their metabolic rate. So there's a few people in the industry that will argue uh, that diet breaks and refeeds are like purely psychological. It's, it's just a break from the diet. There's no physiological benefits, but this is kind of saying otherwise, correct? Like Ooh, this yeah. is kind of like, and this is the first one to really prove that I believe. It's the first study that I'm aware of in resistance trained people mm. and, and, and first one in lean people. There's been a several other diet break studies and, and just the global literature on diet breaks they don't always show a benefit, but based on what I know about that literature, they're never worse. And they're, in some cases, they're significantly better. There's a famous study called the Matador study in obese males that mm -hmm. was, they lost considerably more fat. Now it does take longer because you're taking breaks, but the, the amount of time you're spent dieting is the same. Yeah. And the, the way that I approach all of my research is, while I study bodybuilders and bikini competitors and physique athletes, I love studying them, but I don't study them because I want to necessarily contribute to that population. I want to learn from them so that we can help everybody else, what you would call Gen Pop, who wants to look like they could step on stage. So they're people that like to optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle. That's really where my focus is. And this refeed study fits in perfectly with that. What do most people do on the weekends? Do they eat more or less? They eat more. I know I do. And this system or this refeed paradigm that we studied, it fits into that lifestyle perfectly. Maybe be a little more controlled Monday through Friday. And now on the weekend, when you naturally increase your calories, you can do that and maintain your muscle and protect your metabolism and, and all of the things that go with it. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's, you basically described the majority of the people we work with. So that's perfect. And it's funny because I had, uh, and this is nothing against James Krieger because I subscribe to his stuff and I love reading all of his content, but he was interviewed and he was one of the people that said like he believed it's just 100% psychological. And I had a client of mine who was also a coach reach out and was like, what are your thoughts on this? Like, what would your argument be? And I was like, I'm not doing the research, but I have hundreds of clients we've worked with over the years and it works. So if it works, it works. <laughs> so, and my point was saying that too, is I think being evidence-based isn't just looking at research. It's also looking at experience and anecdote of what is happening while actually working with people. Yes. Yeah. And to that note, and I don't know James Krieger, Krieger personally, but I really respect his work. Like I, I just read his volume Bible study really on his website. Oh, it's so good. Um, now that I wonder if after reading my study, I don't know if I sent it to him, but maybe he has a change of mind. And let's also say that's just one study. Somebody could come yeah. out next month and do a similar study and find out that it's worse. And then we have to deal with, you know, we'd have to somehow interpret that into our, our mindset. But at this point, it's the only study done and it was favorable. And you want to know something else about just not believing stuff. Lane Norton years ago was telling me about reverse dieting and how, uh, you, you know, you keep increasing calories, you know, just a little bit, little bit. And, and, and you're not going to, you know, these, these clients don't gain weight. And I was like, that's, that's not true. That's, there's no way that happens. And then I had some clients and, and my, particularly my wife, where, where, where this came to, wow, a wow moment for me was my wife. We dieted my wife down, got her real lean. 
She got to the point where she could not keep up with the amount of food that we were prescribing for her and she was not gaining weight. And I, I, Lane, you were right. I didn't believe it, but now I see it in front of me. So I think a lot of us are wisely critical of a lot of this stuff and it takes some time. So, and that's the funny thing too, what you do and what John Gorman and Lane Lauren Conlon, what you guys actually do in the field is really, my research is about two or three years behind what you guys are actually doing. Like, I'm just saying, okay, this is what you're doing. Let me test it. And then that's, that's just how it works. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. I think there's a lot of studies that come out that you can say like, oh, so-and-so has been doing that. Or like even reverse dieting is such a good example. Like it takes a long time to get funding and to get the people together and participants and actually do a study. So if one guy being Lane just says, Hey, this works, people aren't going to just jump on a study and publish it right away. It takes time, you know? Oh yes. Yeah. Usually from the time we think about doing a study, it's a year before we start it. Oh wow. I didn't know it was that long. Oh yeah. Yeah. Now that's partly because of my lab's productivity. We're very busy and have a lot of stuff, but we started um, in November talking about this high versus low protein study that we're going to do in, in, in non-resistance trained females. Um, but the, the big, the big, um, I'll just call it the hurdle is an IRB, the institutional review board. It can take four weeks up to 12 weeks to just get approval. Um, and that's once the study is everything's thought out. So the university has to approve it and it can take, you know, a month or two months to get all of the documents. Then you get it approved. Now you have to start recruiting subjects so you can start the study. So it's in my lab, it's, it can be a year. Um, if we are doing nothing else and that's our sole priority, it's probably about a three month from study idea to starting data collection and that would be the fastest that it could possibly be mm. yeah that's wild i don't think people realize just how much work and how much time it goes into it no um, but that's why nobody does it too i mean it's yeah <laughs> i guess it's good for me <laughs> yeah exactly that i mean that's why i appreciate it so much um one of the reasons so to, to kind of round out this diet break study do you feel like um were the diet did this muscle maintenance occur at a higher level because of carbs going up so glycogen stores are up and training was better or do you think it's more of like an insurance policy effect where it's just time out away from the diet like the less time in a diet the easier it is for your body to essentially just keep physiological processes healthy so we did monitor training volume and there were no significant differences in training volume but just because there were no significant differences doesn't mean that maybe they were able to do an extra rep or two, which wouldn't have met the threshold to be a significant. Mm. What I think happened was, and well, globally dieting is catabolic. And when you're not dieting, you can be in an, in a more of an anabolic environment. So for two days out of every week, we kick them out of a can of catabolic environment two days every week. The other group didn't have that luxury. They were catabolic for seven weeks. We know that insulin can suppress muscle protein breakdown. So by having two days of high carbohydrate intake, where obviously we're spiking insulin, and my, my guess is, and the reason I have to say guess is because we didn't measure insulin levels, 
but we have we had these elevations in insulin which suppresses muscle protein breakdown and that happened for at least those two days maybe it carried over into monday so a third day that's what i think is the mechanism as to why they were able to maintain their muscle mass and then when you think about how what about their metabolic rate well that's indirectly tied to muscle mass so if you keep more muscle you're going to have a higher metabolic rate so the the, the muscle mass this helps describe what we observed with the uh with the metabolic rate um also an important note our, our lab just finished an actual diet break study in resistance trained females where we gave them a week off and that was a large study we had about 40 subjects we um we got Dr. Eric Trexler. He was our data analyst. So he is now analyzing that data. Oh, very and cool. I need to, yes. Yeah. He's, he's so he, good at that. He actually does all of my uh, training and nutrition and everything. So he's like my coach. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Yes. And then I also need to, to give a shout out to Menno Henselman's Menno and his business partner funded this study. Mm. So, and I don't, I don't know this for sure, but I think Menno may not I don't, I don't know if he has a favorable opinion of diet breaks. I don't so think for, he likes them. He what? I don't think he likes them. He was just on a, uh, a diet break debate with uh, Jacobs. Uh, I can never pronounce his name. Shepis. Um, but he was arguing against them saying that. Yeah. And again, he has his clientele that he's getting feedback from, but what a testament to him to invest in a lab who, I mean, I have to be careful of my biases. I, I like them for general population, but I'm, and again, I'm, everything was randomized. I'm not analyzing my own data. So uh, kudos to him to, to fund a study. And one of the things that he suggested that we do that I wasn't planning on was doing a hunger questionnaire. And what that will tell us is, and I think maybe his, his thought was, if you let these people take a week off and then they're eating all these, you know, this, this food, and then they come back to a diet, maybe that's going to spike their hunger more so. So we're going to answer that question as well. So we actually have some psychological hunger questionnaires that we're going to report with this study as well. Oh, very cool. This is going to be a really good study to come out for the industry. I'm excited for that. Yes. Yeah. And then I also need to say Madeline Seidler was my research coordinator. She's the one, she, she managed the whole study. She did a great job. I love that. I, I think it's really cool. Like one thing I always recommend to people is, you, you know, I've always been into bodybuilding, but I understand there's a lot of people I work with who could care less about looking good in a speedo on stage. And I get that. So they don't, they're not as into it as I am. Um, and, and I don't compete anymore. Uh, but uh, point being, I think the application of bodybuilding research and science and programming and things like that is so valuable to everybody. I always encourage people who just work with gen pop, if you want to help gen pop understand how bodybuilders do it because they do it better than anybody and you don't have to put every minor detail in that they do because we're more ocd in nature but you can take a lot of what is working and apply it to anybody because it's fat loss fat loss is fat loss yes no i agree and i use i use the language study what bodybuilders do and then just dial it down a notch or two so that you can do it in your everyday life yep that's 100% right. Um, okay, so I want to jump into one more study before we uh, start closing this thing up. Um, okay. And it is the volume versus frequency study that I believe was in female. No, that was males. That was that male? Was, okay, so can yeah, you explain this one to us? Yeah, the male powerlifting study. Okay. And that was uh, coordinated by Ryan Calhoun, Dr. Calhoun now. So 
what we did there was, this was at a time when there was a lot of debate about frequency versus volume. So this was a more of a power lifting study design. So we had a large emphasis on squat, bench press, deadlift. And what we had was, and I have to remember this study was about four years old. We published it about two or three years ago. We had one group train three days per week. So squat, bench, deadlift, and then like two accessory lifts. And they were doing, I think it was four sets of squat, four sets of bench press every workout. And on two of the days they did, uh, no, one day they did deadlift. Then in the other group, they lifted six days per week. And we just doubled overall, it was the same volume, but just double the frequency. So instead of four sets of squat and bench press, it was two sets per day. So at the end of the week, they both did 12 sets of squat, 12 sets of uh, bench press, and I think it was eight sets, two, yeah, four, six, or eight sets of deadlift. I don't remember exactly. And what we found was that there was no difference in terms of lifting every day or more frequently, such as six times versus only three times when volume was controlled. So it was the same volume. Now, we also measured body composition and there was no significant difference in muscle mass or fat loss. But there's another statistical approach called effect size. And when you look at an effect size, that gives you just a different way to look at the data and it controls for subject sample size. And it looked like, according to that data, to the effect size data, that training more frequently was a little bit better in terms of gaining muscle mass than training less. So they're, they're again, just one study, but maybe training more frequently. And to me, at least theoretically, that makes more sense because I keep stimulating the body more often to maximize muscle protein synthesis than rather than if I'm doing it every other day or you know like a, a two like an upper lower upper lower type of split mm-hmm. so that's what we found with that and since that study there's been an avalanche of frequency-based studies and pretty much the data agrees as long as the volume is the same frequency doesn't really provide an advantage for strength and probably not for muscle hypertrophy either, but I think we're now we're starting to design more studies that are focusing on hypertrophy first and strength second. So we'll see. I think that's helpful too. I think what I always tell people is frequency is kind of a tool to manage your volume. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if people look at it that way, it's easier because frequency can be helpful. And I, and I remember when frequency was first uh, kind of not came into the industry because it's, I mean, it's been a thing forever, but um, it got really popular. And all of a sudden it was like high frequency. You have to hit the muscles as as often as you can. And a lot of people argued because of, I mean, not to take it here, but bodybuilders who just do bro splits, they have chest day and stuff like that. And they would argue like, well, what about these guys? And the reality is a lot of those people that they're referring to actually take steroids. And so that drip, that effect that you keep talking about of just stimulating the muscle, they kind of have that going on all the time. from the steroid. Um, So that's really important for people to know. But I think, I think just looking at frequency as a tool is is really helpful because I know for me, knowing that if my volume is equated, I'm going to get the gains. That's great. But I know for a fact that I will not be able to lift with uh, as high of an intensity as I can. If I'm just sitting there doing chest 
for two hours and just demolishing my, my pecs. Like I'm not going to get very effective volume after a few exercises. So I, I much more prefer an upper lower or a push pull legs, even something that's kind of spreading it out and allowing me to maximize volume because of that frequency. Yes. And we do, I'm, I am aware of one study where they did control for volume and the bro split was, was inferior to a more frequency. I think mm-hmm. that hitting the muscle groups two times versus just once per week was significantly better. So I would add to that. I, the, the, the one study that I'm aware of would suggest that you don't just have a chest day, a back day, a triceps day, or an arms day. Yeah, I believe that was, I think Brad Schoenfeld published that. Um, when in doubt, just say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, it's, if it's about muscle growth whatsoever, it was probably Brad. Yeah. Yeah, he's incredible. He's, <laughs> he's and he's a good guy too. He's, um, talk, he's, he's, he's a pure scientist. He's not in this for, to, to, to make money. He's, he's just very passionate about yeah. the science. Yeah, I actually just ordered his book. So people listening, if you want to check out his stuff, I, I believe he just came out with the second edition. Yeah, I got it. Got it here. Oh, he 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 sent you the uh, advanced copy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, yes, he did. <laughs> oh, that is too cool. Well, cool. Um, I have one last question for you, just to kind of wrap this all up. Um, and it's and it's not really. Uh, I mean, I guess it's it's science based. I mean, after looking at all the research that we've talked about, and, and really just more of your experience after you doing this for so long, what do you feel like is the uh, like the biggest things that stand out to you? Because one thing I was going to say is it all kind of boils down to calories in versus calories out in volume. Like at the end of the day, all this stuff it's always just calories. It's always just volume. Um, what do you say just to that statement in general? And what have you noticed as like a commonality across all the research you've done over the years? It's a loaded question. Yeah, it's a deep question. Um, I'll just give you my gut response. My gut response is it is calories in calories out. It does appear to be volume, but you have to pair what we learn in the science with what you are actually going to do or how does it actually fit your, your life. So in your, in, in, with you and your wife, if you have a, you have a two-year-old, well, you're not, you might not be able to have the ideal training style. And maybe the days of grilling chicken breasts and having that six nights per week, and maybe you can still do that, but I'll tell you, there'll come a time when that might not be cool to, <laughs> to force your kid to do that. So. I always like to, and again, I'm a scientist. I live the science. I spend hours a day reading it. But I also appreciate we have to make this fit within your lifestyle. So if you're only going to do one thing, well, let's say two things. Yes, it let's, let's eat in a caloric deficit if you're trying to lose fat. But to that, I would say, let's not do that every day for months and months. Let's take some breaks. And Let's try to resistance train, do something to stimulate the, the, the muscle mass so that we can keep your metabolism elevated. I love it. I think that's perfect. Um, I, I think it really does need to be uh, more put out there. And, I'm, and, and some people would say you're kind of beating a dead horse when you keep doing research that shows calories are most important. But I actually think it's important because there's a lot of people who buy, especially in Gen Pop, that buy into stuff that is just it's not evidence-based. It doesn't really make sense. And it's kind of, it, there's a, a financial um, motive behind it. It's a product or a supplement or something yeah. like that. 
So I think the more research that comes out saying the same thing is actually helpful because it reminds people like, Hey, it's, it's simple. It's more simple than you think. You just have to be consistent with it and you just have to actually do it. There's no, there's no hack or magic trick. Yes. No, I think that's well said. Well stated. So, well, I, I appreciate you coming on. Um, this has been a blast for me to be able to actually talk to you and, and dive into some of this stuff. Um, I do want you to shout out everything you have. So your social media and stuff like that, you have a great Instagram. I love the quizzes you do and things like that. It's super okay. informative. So I highly recommend everybody uh, follow you, but can you just give us your Instagram handle? If you have any uh, online content or anything like that, that you can send people towards as well. Yeah. So I'll, I'll name everything that I'm on. It's, um, it's only Instagram and my username is Bill Campbell, PhD. Perfect. Very, very simple. And I've only been on Instagram for actively for a little over a year. So it's, it's, it was new to me, but I'm learning. Yeah. And you're consistent with it. You put out content quite often. So um, I highly encourage, like I said, I'll link that in the show notes guys. So go check him out a uh, ton of informative uh, content every single day or throughout the week, I should say. Um, and look for the upcoming studies, which whenever they come out, I will uh, do my best to point people in the right directions to get the review or get the, if it's, if it's free and it's out there online, I'll obviously link that as well. Um, but again, man, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.